Lantern Lantern, go King of the road, let's go Lantern will never let you go When no one's left of mine Lantern will survive Lantern, go Take my turn King of the road Lantern, go Don't need no rules or regulations No fears or hesitation Never goes by the book That guy knows how to cook Lantern, go! King of the road Eat my turn Lantern, go! King of the road, let's go! Lantern, go never let you go When no one's left alive, let Jack well survive. Let Jack go. On the corner out in front of where the Mabuhe Gardens used to stand, I'm Schmitty and this is Talking Schmidt. Today on the show, the lead singer of the legendary punk band Fang, this is Sammy Town, Sam McBride. But before we start, I got a little bit of advertising this week, kids. If you'd like to advertise, hit me up at talkingschmidt at gmail.com. All right, kids, check this out. We got a new book called Trim Camp from AE Gold. Trim Camp is a tall tale about a group of pro skateboarders who decided to trim weed from a pool skating orgy to a kung fu challenge. The drama never stops. Even the super trooper escapade couldn't dampen the stoke of playing a poker tournament on acid. This was one for the record books. Definitely a best read when you're hella high. Ryan Clement said he learned a lot about how the weed world works from reading this book. Mickey Reyes said he gave his copy to Cardiel. Joey Terche exclaimed, lies, all fucking lies. Imagine having the munchies of reading. That's right, kids. Trim Camp. Get your copy of Trim Camp today. Artwork by Connor Getzlaff. Hey, it's Corey at Blue Plate, 3218 Mission Street. Come see us. Meatloaf, fried chicken, deviled eggs, Dollar Olympia beers. We're here every day of the week. We got a garden and we got smiles on our faces. Come let us make you happy. This is Sammy Town from Fang and you're listening to Talking Schmidt. It's cool, like tonight is the night. Here we go again. Just give it the all cause turn, isn't it? All big dogs in. Schmitty. 96 times, Schmitty. Thanks, Schmitty. We on? Schmitty. Talking Schmidt. That's called going to the hospital, bitch. I be shit my pants. Man. Your Rolodex is fucking deep. It's about the one, the one, the one. Who is this guy who thinks he's tough shit? What's up? We're tastemakers. Come on, Schmitty, what the fuck? Let's hear it for Greg Smith. All right, fuck, last year was rough. We know that. One of the many shitty things that happened to me was finding out that after I did a lengthy interview with my following guests, I was super pleased with, I came to find out that the file got corrupt and was not salvageable. I sent out the huge apology, basically said anytime, anywhere, I'm available for the rebate, and here we are. 
really appreciate given the second opportunity there's the lead singer of the legendary bay area punk band fang they call him sammy town welcome to talking schmidt part two <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me back <laughs> i appreciate no, it thank you fuck i felt so it was perfect though for 2020 wise it was just like oh another <laughs> yep <laughs> no no doubt yeah i know anything that happens right now is uh it's just par for the course you know yeah how how have you guys you're in arizona still right yeah yeah still in tucson uh i mean tucson is uh we moved here during the pandemic so i don't even know what it's like normally right it, you know um and so it'll be it'll be interesting as the virus as the vaccine uh gets you know disseminated across the United States and things hopefully go back to normal. We'll get to actually experience Tucson and see what it's really like. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a trip down there. It's kind of a college town. Yeah. They have, yeah. yeah, They have, what is it? UC Arizona or Arizona state university of Arizona, I think. And then Phoenix has Arizona. uh, Yeah. Arizona state. Uh Phoenix is the party college and Tucson is, I think the more serious, uh, academic you know school right let's start with the early days where were you born and raised was born and raised in the east bay you know uh my dad uh when i was a little kid we lived in berkeley my dad was going to uc berkeley and so um so i i grew up we moved for like a year we moved to iowa for a year when i was a little kid but after he graduated uc berkeley he came back a, a year later uh, and got a job and he, he taught at uh, UC Berkeley. I mean, he's retired now. He's still alive, but he taught there for, I don't know, 40 years or a long, a long time. Were you actually born in Berkeley then? or I, I was, I was born at Alta Bates hospital uh, on Ashby Avenue in Berkeley. Oh, wow. Damn. So, okay, cool. What's your birth sign? I'm a Taurus. Taurus. Do you believe in that stuff? I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes I used to read it, I guess. I think it's, it's entertainment, you know, it's Uh funny, you know, some of it, I guess applies. I'm certainly stubborn, you know, and, uh, uh, that, that part is, is absolutely true. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) It's just a coincidence. No, same. I've been finding a lot of similarities. The older I get, I'm like, your authentic self comes out and you're like, maybe I am a little bit. <laughs> so, but uh, do, you, do you remember what your first record was? Did you, did you? Oh, record? the first oh. record I ever, ever bought. Yeah. Uh, the first record I ever bought was Elton John's uh my cat is trying to attack the keyboard from behind so if something goes wrong I'll, uh elton john it's uh uh captain fantastic and the brown dirt cowboy by elton john that and right around the same time i bought the uh i used to go to a lot of movies when i was a kid that was like you know before i started like running amok uh we would you know me and friends would go go to the movies all the time, like every weekend. And so uh, I got the soundtrack to Star Wars was also one of my first records. I, 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 yeah, I got it. I got that uh, 
when it came out. I, I think I went and saw that movie about 10 times in the theater. And so the original. Uh, yeah. Yeah. When it came out, when it came out. Oh, sick. Did you uh, get into the other ones too? Have you seen all of them? Do you have it? Oh yeah. I've seen all of them. I'm not like a, a star Wars, you know, like huge fan, but yeah. you know, I, I, I've saw definitely seen all the movies. I haven't watched like the Mandalorian or anything uh, uh, that is an offshoot of that. I'm not, uh, but I'll watch all, you know, like if another Star Wars movie came out, I would go see it because at least when I was a kid, it was a big deal. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was like that first movie was, was uh, it was epic. It was like hero with a thousand faces. It had all, all the great elements of a, you know, all the, the archetypes were, were really well done, mm. you know? And, and like I said, we went to the movies a lot. That uh, was me and uh, Jimmy Thebow and uh and uh, another friend of ours this girl i'm trying to remember her name uh but we would spend most weekends going to the movies you know wait did you grow up with jim thebo yeah we became best friends in the fourth grade wow <laughs> and so oh, wow. we yeah we yeah, i i call him jimmy nobody calls him jimmy oh jake you, you know? could call him jimmy rancid <laughs> yeah uh but i call i call him jimmy because that's what everybody called him back then but we uh i don't know we ended up in the same class in the fourth grade and then we that's when we started hanging out and uh and we started skating together and uh we we were real close uh till i started running like i hit ninth grade we were freshmen in high school together and, uh, and I, you know, I really rarely went to school, mm. you know, and, and Jimmy stayed in school and he really got, we, we'd been skating together. I think we got banana boards in the fourth grade, maybe the fifth, you know, we started uh, skating and our, uh, pig boards came out and like, I made my own pig board, you know, and we, uh, there was a, a place up in Berkeley called a lot of flex skateboards and uh, they made their own trucks, blades, trucks back then. And, um, you know, it was, a uh, it was skating was an underground, you know, culture, very tied into punk rock. You know, like if you, uh, if you skated back then you listened to punk rock and if you were a punk rocker back then you had a skateboard, Sure. you know, and, uh, but uh, Jimmy, uh, he, he got obviously very good, you know, he really, really focused on skating and he became obviously a, you know, incredible skater, right. you know, and, uh, and I went, uh, off. I always had a, a side of me that was attracted to crime, you know, and, uh, and I started doing hustles pretty, pretty early on, you know, there was, uh, a kid in school that had been flunked a couple times and uh, I was his pigeon. We would get on the 72 bus. Well, he would get on the bus and he'd play, you know, three card money. And, uh, and he was a much bigger kid, you know, cause he'd flunked a couple times and I was like this dorky little white kid. And so I get on the bus a couple stops after him and, and walk up and play and win, you know? And so the other guys are like, Oh, 
you know, like this isn't a hustle, maybe I could win, you know? And so that's called being a pigeon, you know? And I think I was doing that with Leo was the guy's name in the fifth or sixth grade. We were really young to be (laughs) pulling hustles like that uh, on the bus, you know? And, uh, and then, you know, I, I think one of my first real hustles on my own, we were in, uh, I was, we were, we went to a middle school. It was in a, it was called Albany middle school where Jimmy and I went. And, uh, I was in the, I think I was in the seventh grade and I'd gone to San Francisco with my folks for something. I don't know. We went over to the city and we were driving through Chinatown and we're sitting, you know, this was the seventies. We have a, you know, a big station wagon and I'm sitting in the back of the station wagon, you know, driving through Chinatown and I see these teenage kids and they're standing next to a garbage can. And uh, this other kid walks up and I'm watching and he pulls out some money and he gives them some money and they reach in the garbage can and they pull out a brick of firecrackers. Cause at that time you couldn't get fireworks at all in California. It was really hard. And they were selling black market firecrackers. And, and I watched this all go down the next weekend. I was on BART, went to the city, you know, fucking ran, you know, like, just made my way through Chinatown till I saw those two kids standing by the garbage can. And I bought a brick of firecrackers and I came back and I sold them uh, for, you know, like a pack. I think I can't remember for sure. I think they cost me like 25 cents a pack and I was selling them for a dollar at school. Right. You know, so I was like, uh, while Jimmy was honing his skateboarding skills, I was honing some of my, uh, some of my other, uh, other skills he was street skating and you were just learning street tactics <laughs> yeah we did we did pull some moves together though he probably would never talk about this but uh we used to steal bmx bikes together oh. and so so that was a, a hustle for a little while uh you know kids uh neither jimmy or i came from you know a whole i mean our parents well he lived with his mom i lived with both my parents but we weren't we weren't poor, but we were in no way well off, you know, right. we were uh, middle class or lower middle class kids or whatever. But uh, BMX had really started to blow up, you know, and these kids would uh, get like nice BMX bikes and they would just leave them sitting outside of a store, you know, so uh, we'd ride two on one bike, you know, he'd usually ride me and I'd be riding like standing on the uh, the pegs and we just keep an eye out and we'd see some kid set his bike down and go in the store. I jump off, grab the bike and we take off, you know? Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, Jimmy's mom, uh, she, they had a garage up there that was fairly, uh, his mom never went in the garage. So we would take the bikes to, to, to Jimmy's garage and we tear them all apart hey, and no. rebuild them. You yeah. know, so they it wouldn't be matching, you know, because everything is people would know their bike. But, you know, if you took this frame and those cranks and, you know, refit it, then, you know, sell it or run amok. And that went on for a little while till I I'd stole this one bike and it was a, a red line pro line frame. And I really liked this frame. I'd never seen one before. And uh so I decided, oh, this is one I'm keeping. What I didn't know 
was there were only two of them that had been sold in that had been sold in Northern California. So as soon as the spike was stolen, everybody was looking for it. And uh, so well, one man. day I, yeah. So I went to uh, I went to a bike shop one day to get something, and there was a bunch of kids hanging out that knew who I was, and the guy in the bike shop saw the frame. And he's like, Hey, who is that kid? You know, that's a stolen bicycle. And so the, uh, I don't know if that was the first time the police showed up at my house, but it certainly wasn't the last time the police showed up at my house. Did you have brothers or sisters? I had an older sister. Uh, she was two years older than I, she was, uh, she was a very straight, normal, you know, kid uh she lives in new york now you know she uh she has she got into sort of filmmaking and producing Hmm. and that's what she does in new york okay you know she's a producer what do you think it was that made you like just like run amok like that like when you're one more kids we just want to like defy everybody right that's a, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think a, a lot of it uh, had to do with hypocrisy. Uh-huh. You know, like I, I really felt it's like back then. Uh, I mean, even now, you know, with politics and everything, you know, it's uh, the the shit that goes on. It it makes me mad. You know, it, it makes me it makes me pissed. It makes me sick. Uh-huh. And 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 it it makes me want to shake people and say, don't you fucking see what's really going on? Yeah. Like how fucked up shit is, and you act like everything's okay, you know. And I, I think that that, and I, but I don't know why that struck me so, you know. And and I don't know why my reaction to it. It's not like I became some political activist, right? You know, I just became a total nihilist. I'm like, well, if the system's fucked, then fuck the system. And I'm just going to run amok and do whatever the fuck I want. Mm. You know, is that kind of right when you started discovering like punk rock and, and all that stuff? That was nice. Yeah. yeah. I think all, all of that kind of came together. Like I, I had this, I don't know, a loss of innocence when you're like 11 or 12, you know, um, where you really, at least for me, where it's like, uh, okay, this is, this is the real world. Like Star Wars ain't never going to fucking happen. You know? <laughs> There's no Santa. <laughs> you know? Once you really have to face that Star Wars ain't never going to fucking happen. I think for me, that's when, you know, uh, I, well, I think I was kind of lost and, and disjointed and, uh, and even, uh, a little, I was suicidal at that time. I was like, dude, fuck this. You know, I ended up trying to commit suicide when I was under 12, maybe. And they, they put me in a uh, Herrick hospital. And, uh, but then uh, I found punk rock, you know, and then it was like star Wars could happen. Cause it was like all these freaks and all these weirdos. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, this is, you know, they and cast the characters, cast the characters you know so did you did you get introduced to punk rock by going to a show or something like 
that's kind of how I did. My friends took me to the varsity in Palo Alto when I was a kid. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like stage diving, like all that shit. You're like, what? I'm in. Who did you go see? Who was the... I think the first one was crazy enough as it sounds. I'm pretty sure it was aggression and suicidal tendencies with maybe the faction. Wow. I think it was like That's... a skate kind of a skate rock show and i didn't yeah. even know what i was like i didn't intentionally do that i i think it just happened to be the my friends had gone and saw a show the week before they were pretty much every friday for a while and okay. uh they were like dude i forget who they saw maybe it was doa or whoever and they're like you got to check this out so the next friday i went with them and then we all were just like skaters and like you said, I think it was just natural, but then it was just on. Like we started going to the farm on the bus and like uh, on Broadway, the stone. Um, there was one in Palo Alto. I think it was called the Keystone or something. Right. Back yeah. Then. Cause there was, there was the Keystone Berkeley, the Keystone Palo Alto and yeah. the stone in San Francisco. So yeah. that was yeah. how we did it. But is that, did, is, did you get brought to a show for your first time or the first, uh, uh, my dad taught at UC Berkeley and he took a sabbatical in, uh, God, it was 77 or 78. So we moved to Europe uh, oh. at that time. And so we were living in Wales uh, in kind of like a tiny little town. He would go into Cardiff to work, but uh, I was going to school in this little town in Wales and there was an English kid that was in my class and uh, we were kind of the outcasts because the Welsh hate the English. And I was kind of some weird kid from America that nobody knew exactly, you know, what to think of. And so me and this kid started hanging out. And uh, one day after school, he's like, he goes, you got to come over to the house afterward. He goes, I got this record. You really got this new record. And before this time, like I said, I listened to Elton John uh, I listened to disco and funk and R and B and soul. Uh, you know, that was, uh, that was what was popular in the, in the East Bay, you know, in the seventies. Um, but he had never mind the Bullocks. Here's the sex pistols record, you know, and, uh, and he put that record on and it was, <laughs> and it was on, you know, and, uh, I, I remember coming back and hanging out with Jimmy. And I think that he had, I'm like, you got to hear these guys. And I think he, if I remember this correctly, had been turned on to the Ramones by oh, somebody. Okay. So he's like, check this out, you know? And so punk rock was already like just kicking off and, and running amok in, in the, in California. Well, in Northern California and right. Southern California, you know, Pretty soon after I started going to shows, uh, the first show uh, that I went to was when I came back, the Sex Pistols actually came through and played Winterland, you know, and so I, uh, my, my father was the one who told me about that it. That was your first so show? Like, okay. So I went and I snuck out and I went and, and I was a scared little kid, but people were like, like, come on, like, here's a beer, like, you know, they could, you know. And uh, it was like, it was life changing, you know? And, and there were, uh, there were shows. Uh, 
I would have to sneak out, but uh, really, uh, my parents didn't have a lot of rules. My mother was uh, uh, fairly she she had a she was a paranoid psychotic. She was mentally ill, and it would come and it would go. When I started running amok, they they really didn't know how to how to handle that at all, you know. And uh, until I mean, I was. I was 15 years old. By that time, I'd already, I'd been to juvenile hall. Like I said, you know, like I, uh, I already, I was on felony probation. Uh, You know, there's, I had drugs all over the house. There was, uh, and my mom finally at 15, she's like, you got to go. Like, get the fuck out of here. Do not come back, you know? And um, because they just did not know how to, to deal with me, you know? So Solano Avenue is the main street that goes through Albany. And that's where Jimmy and I grew up. That's where we went to school. And uh, I was 15 years old. I was walking down Solano Avenue and a cop car pulls up and stops and a cop gets out, one of the Albany cops. And I didn't recognize him specifically. You know, I knew a bunch of the Albany cops from run-ins, you know, but I didn't recognize this one. He goes, McBride, he goes, you are not welcome on Solano Avenue. He goes, if any of us see you, you're going to fucking jail. So don't let any of us see. You. I'm a 15 year old kid. From stealing bikes or? Yeah, just from, any. you know, I was on felony probation for, uh, I trashed one of the schools and uh, stole a car. And I was, a, I was a known drug dealer too. And okay. when I was a freshman in high school, I think in the, I went for maybe about six months till I really stopped going. But in that six month period, they knew that I was, I mean, I was dealing weed mostly and they knew it and they kept trying to bust me. But in the first six months, the cops came to the school, they pulled me out of class, they searched me, they'd search my locker and they'd never catch me. <laughs> so they, they just knew that I was a problem. So yeah, they're like, you, we don't want to see you on, on this streets of Albany anymore. Uh, you know? Right. So. Wow. Yeah. We, we were a little milder. We, uh, we would go downtown because the police were so bored in my town that they would chase skateboarders. And so we would just like, think it was funny. And we would like, <laughs> you can't catch us. And we would go through the laundry mats to the alley and just circle around and like, it was just playing like, you know, hide and go seek or something. They get so pissed. <laughs> Who knows? But back then, I don't really remember. But I feel like it all starts with a frustrated moment. Like you're like, what do you mean? We can't skateboard on the sidewalks. What do you mean? They're called sidewalk surfboards. <laughs> like, come on, fuckers. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, what? I think that a lot of those rules didn't actually start happening until after I'd already dropped out of high school. Right. I dropped out of high school in 79. Okay. You know? Yeah. And so, uh, because I do remember, I like the principal in the high school, he pulled me into his office uh, and he was giving me shit about the way I was dressed and I was causing problems. And, and, uh, you know, I always had a skateboard and I'd skate down the halls, you know, and he, and he's like, 
he would try and say, well, like, you can't do that. I'm like, there's no rule about that. You know, he, you know, cause there wasn't at that time, you know, and he was like, he gets so pissed because they're there, you know, like he couldn't bust me for stupid shit like that because those rules hadn't actually been implemented. Right. You know, so I'd skate down the halls. I'd fucking dress however I wanted. I, mm. you know, I mean, some of the shit I definitely, you know, I would get in trouble for, but uh, you know, a lot of it, they, they just hadn't actually written down a rule yet for it. So it was kind of, uh, you know, it was kind of like, okay, whatever, you know, yeah. you're mad, uh, whatever, fuck off. You know? Did you get the name Sammy Town because you were dealing drugs in, in the East Bay and that became your town? Like, how, how did that story go? So uh, some, some years moving, moving right along, we were, uh, there was a couple bands that, we, that were super tight. Uh, there was Fang, Tales of Terror from Sacramento, and Code of Honor. Uh, Code of Honor had Dave, Sha- you know, Dave, Dave and Joel, you know, the Chavez brothers. Yeah. All of us in all three of those bands, we were, we were like a family. You know, uh, we would hang out in Sacramento all the time. Those guys would come down. And on our, I used to be called Slammy way back originally because I, I was always in in the pit. I was always, you know, uh, I was always, in fact, our first record, that's what, and that's what everybody knew me as. Cause I was always, uh, slam dancing, stage diving Yeah. Uh, at, at the Keystone Berkeley. When I was 14, I backflipped off the stage and everybody moved. I had to get my head stapled back together. Uh, you know, so this is probably 84 cause it was after Landshark came out or it might've been 83 after the record came out, but Tales of Terror played at the On Broadway in San Francisco. And, uh, and I, by that time, I was dealing acid. You know, when I first started, I, I dealt uh, mostly weed. I was, you know, I'd started dealing weed way back. And, uh, but by then, I had been brought into the acid family. Uh, I was uh, one of the older members, one of his boys, one of his protégés, you know, and so I had started dealing acid. So, I'd always, you know, all those guys, I'd always get them fucked up on acid. And so the Tales of Terror played at the On Broadway and we came back to the East Bay and we're going to Tripp's house. Tripp, the guitar player, he was uh, another childhood friend of mine. He became the guitar player for, ta- one of the guitar players for Tales of Terror. All, all of them were from Sacramento, except for Tripp was, uh, was from the East Bay. And so we're going back to Tripp's house to party after the show and uh, I'm really drunk, but they're all frying super hard on acid. And we got off the freeway in, in downtown Oakland. And I don't even remember why we got off the freeway, but we're, we're driving down Broadway. And back then Broadway was the host row, you know? And so we're driving along and, and they're all like checking all these hookers out. And uh, I don't know, maybe there wasn't really a host row in Sacramento, but this is like these guys, and they're also frying on us like, oh my God, ah! you know, <laughs> screaming at them. And we're driving down. I'm like, hey, 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 stop, right? And and they're like, what, what, what? And I'm like, I know those hookers, you know? <laughs> and there are these two chicks are walking on the street. I'm like, hey, Shelly, right? And so we pull over and they're, and they're like, what's up, Sammy? You know? Uh, and so there was these two hookers that I knew I'd shot dope with them. And, uh, 
and I hung out with them. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? They're like, well, we're working, but there ain't nothing happening. I'm like, well, let's go party. Come on, get in the fucking van, you know? And, uh, and Tales of Terror, it's just like, they're looking at me like, no fucking way, you know, because they were still, I think, a little more sh- sheltered than, than I was at that point, you know? So these hookers hop in the van and they have an apartment not that far. So we go over to their apartment to go party with these hookers. And uh, so I break off with them when we get there because I want to get some heroin and they were going to get some heroin. So we pulled our money together. They called their dope dealer and I passed out because I was super drunk, you know, so I passed out on one of their beds and tail of terror, like partying with these hookers. They're like taking their clothes off, you know, it's like crazy hooker party. And uh, and the, the, the dope man shows up, you know, and he sells them, you know, some heroin and and. They're cooking it all up. And so they're, they're actually going to give me my issue, even though I was passed out, which I, I have to admit, that's pretty fucking rad that they actually didn't just do it all you know, since I was passed out. But uh, none of those guys in Taylor, I think at that point had ever shot up before. And all of a sudden they see these hookers with needles and they think that they're trying to kill me because they're also frying on acid. So oh then all of a sudden, they start freaking out. They're like, no, you can't kill it. And then they're freaking out. They're like trying to grab the rigs. The chicks are like, get away from my dope, you know? And it becomes this huge scene. They grab me and fucking like firemen carry me out the door and we take off and go back to, uh, go back to Tripp's house. So the tale of the terror guys started calling Oakland and Sammy's town. You know, uh, let's go down to Sammy's town. We'll eat some acid. We'll have some crazy adventure down there. It'll be completely off the hook. And so that's, so then it just kind of stuck. They just caused, started calling me Sammy town. And that's the origin of, of that name. They all had nicknames though. Tales of Terror caught, like had nicknames for everybody, you know? And so it was a pretty, uh, normal thing for them, but that's just the one that they gave me and it stuck. Well, let's backtrack a little bit though. Uh, Cause you, you were already in Fang at that time then. Yeah. You were in a band before Fang, right? Yeah. I was in two bands before Fang. Uh, one of them was like literally a garage band. We practiced at my parents' house. It was uh, me and Turner who later went on to play in special forces and uh, and we had David Gaines and this guy, Matt. And I don't know if they never really went on to playing in other bands, but uh, we were called Reign of Terror. And we were like we were like 13, I think, or maybe 14. We were like really young, but we made we made our own shirts, you know, like stencil spray paint uh, style. We had a, a songbook. Uh, uh, I played bass in that band actually. Uh, and uh, Turner played guitar and Matt played drums. This guy, David, he was the singer, but we never actually played a show. After that, I was asked to sing for a band called shut up and uh, shut up was a, a band. These other guys had put together and they had a singer, but I don't know what happened. Uh, the guy who was singing for him was named Mark. And they had a show at the Sound of Music. And the Sound of Music is super gnarly punk rock dive bar in the Tenderloin. 
back in the seventies and uh, they needed a singer. Uh, maybe Mark's mom wouldn't let him go out and play. I don't know. But anyway, they asked me uh, to sing for him. So I sang for them for a while. We played, you know, at the sound of music. Uh, and then what happened was that I was hanging out at that time. Uh, my best friend was this guy, Joel Fox. And he, uh, he was quite a bit older. I think I was 15. It was like 1980. Um, and, uh, Joel was probably, Joel was probably like 22, oh. you know, and he had a car and he played in a band called, he played, he was a drummer. He played in subsidized mess and those, th that band broke up and, uh, those guys went on with a different drummer and a different singer to become crucifix. Oh, okay. And so, um, and I don't remember why subsidized mess broke up, but anyway, uh, Tom Flynn, the guitar player from Fang, he had moved to California. He'd started Fang in Connecticut as like a two piece noise band. And, uh, and then he went to college in Chicago and Brian, the other guy in Fang uh, in 78, went to college in Texas. So they broke Fang up. Tom went to college in Chicago for like three weeks, said, fuck this, I'm going to California. And so he moved to California and moved to Berkeley and he started Fang back up, him on guitar and singing. And then he got a, a bass player and a drummer and uh, they played maybe a couple shows as a three piece like that. And then I don't know why they, they got rid of the drummer. I don't know what happened. If uh, the original drummer in California is this guy, Chris Ritter. I don't know if he quit or if they threw him out, but they were looking for drummers and they hit up Joel. And so I went with Joel to for his tryout for Fang. And uh, this was at a warehouse called new method warehouse first place the bad brains ever played in California. They did shows there. No it was, uh, yeah. It was an underground warehouse down in Emeryville. You know, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. And so, but bands practice there. So uh, Joel tried out for Fang and Tom is like, yeah, we want you to play drums. And after they tried him out and they, they brought him in. I'm, I told Tom and I, I don't, I'd never met Tom before. I'm like, Hey, I think you guys need a lead singer. <laughs> and Tom's like, yeah, I, I've thought about that. He goes, do you know anybody? I'm like, yeah, me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in my 15 year old uh, arrogance, uh, I was like, yeah, I can do that. So he's like, we'll come back, you know, next practice with Joel and we'll, we'll try you out. And oh. I came back the next practice and tried out. And then that was, that was it. What was that? Like 81, 82? Well, I think uh, Not So Quiet on the Western Front came out in 82. So I want to say it was probably 81, maybe, okay. you know, like we'd been playing around before we recorded the first time. So, uh, so I think it was probably 81, you know, like I think I turned 16 right around the time uh, Fang really started playing out live. Okay. You know, and because uh, I was quite a bit younger than everybody. I, I know that I was 16. Uh, I think I'd already maybe uh, when I first started, I might have still been 15. But, um, you know, I was 
16 uh, when we started playing shows and those guys were all over 21 okay. at that time, you know? Okay. That's sick when you're a little kid and but they're all driving you around. They can buy the booze. Like you're just like, I'm in. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Oh, shit. Do you remember like um, some of the early, like some of the first songs that you worked on with the band, like that you were a part of in creating? They had some of the stuff that they'd already written, but then I started writing lyrics and we started, because they only had, for whatever reason, it seemed like a handful of songs, you know? So we started writing stuff uh, pretty much immediately, you know? So Landshark, when Landshark came out, I'd have to look at the song list because it's been so long, but I would say that, you know, maybe... 75% 75% of the songs on that are more, were my lyrics. I'm guessing and, fun with acid. No, that's the, uh, <laughs> the irony, which is even, but that was a Tom Flynn song, oh. which was even funnier <laughs> because it was, uh, you know, because that was my deal. I was an acid dealer. You know, I was just like a little kid acid dealer yeah. and everybody knew me for that. And that, so that was kind of bizarrely ironic, you know, that it, uh, Tom wrote that. Tim Yohannan, you know, he did Maximum Rock and Roll. Oh, yeah. And so me and Tim, we never really got along. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't wrong. I was a troublemaker. I was, you know, like I was kind of a known drug dealer and I would get into trouble uh, fairly often. And, you know, uh, there was, you know, some fighting and just, you know, I was a problem. <laughs> yeah. But 
uh, when he started asking bands to do Not So Quiet on the Western Front, you know, that was the, the first compilation album that came out of uh, the, the Bay Area. Uh, he actually, he hit us up. He asked Fang, he's like, you guys want to be on this, you know? And he, he was like trying to let bygones be bygones. It's like, okay. Um, and uh, so we submitted, I think just like most everybody else, we all submitted a handful of songs. We went and recorded, I think I want to say we recorded like five songs. And then he choose, you know, like for all the bands, he would choose one of those songs and put and put it on the record. And he was the one who chose Fun with Acid. Uh-huh. Out of uh, out of those five, there was uh, well, I think we recorded the money, we recorded AOK, recorded Fun with Acid, we recorded a song called Conviction. Maybe it was only four. Anyway, uh, that was a song that Tim Yohannan picked, uh-huh. and so. Uh, after that record came out, you know, he was a DJ on KPFA radio at every week. He would have a different band from the record that he would interview and, and he'd play their song, you know, and if they had any other material, he'd play more material. And so once that record came out and there was a shit ton of bands, you know, so you were, everybody was in line, you know, to get interviewed on KPFA. Mm. And when it was our turn, we came in there and, uh, Tim Yohannan had thought that that song was about Vietnam, you know, because the helicopters. And so he keeps trying, you know, so he's interviewing us and he keeps trying to like make it into some like political statement. And we're like, no, no, it's just about being fucking whacked out of your mind on acid. And, you know, (laughs) I think by the end of that, he was just like, oh my God, these fucking guys. Yeah. But, did uh, uh, did Tom write the money will roll right in? Uh, Chris Wilson wrote the music, and then uh, Tom wrote the lyrics. I changed some of the lyrics, uh, not a lot of them, but uh, he had like there was a, a handful of songs, like I said, that he had written the lyrics for, and I would alter them a little bit when I would sing them. You know, he he would say here they are, and I would change them up a little bit. But mm. uh, yeah, he he wrote. Uh, the money will write in. It's going to be a star 
Tom, he wrote the money, and I think there was one other song that he wrote the lyrics for. Once I joined the band, we played some of the songs that he had written the lyrics for, but then I just wrote all the lyrics after that. He never, oh, okay. like, you know, and uh, some of the songs he wrote uh, musically and some Chris Wilson, the bass player, wrote uh, the music for. Yeah, you know? that was, I think that's when I got into you guys was... Uh... Land shark. Most of the the song lyrics, at least for that, were pretty like out of satire, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there was there was a lot of satire. Skinheads, skinhead smoke dope, destroy the handicap. Yeah, there was a lot, a lot of satire. Is there like any stories behind? Like, is there like a, we were hanging out and we were just getting fucked up, and then we started saying destroy the handicap, and all of a sudden it became a song. Like, like what? <laughs> Is there anything uh, like that for any of that stuff? Well, I so uh, Berkeley was one of the first uh, towns in the world, uh, certainly, well, I don't want to say the world, in America, where they started, where they had a large handicapped population. Oh. And there was like uh, a, you know, they made wheelchair ramps before any other town, you know, like they, they were actually very... Uh, pro handicap, you know, before anybody else was. And so I don't, uh, I, I was going to uh, Barrington Hall. Barrington Hall was, they had punk rock shows at Barrington Hall. It was like a, uh, it was, it was a college dorm, but it was like this den of uh, it was like any drug you wanted, you could get there. They had punk rock shows there. It was, it was awesome, you know. Right. I used to go there and see Flipper, and there'd be a, an acid punch bowl, you know. And this was like 1979. I mean, it was just fucking, you know, off the hook there. So I was going to, uh, I was going to Barrington for some reason. It was during the day, and uh, I was walking. I took the bus, you know. I got off the bus and I walked up Dwight Way to go to Barrington Hall, and I was not paying attention to what I was doing. And this guy in a wheelchair, like fucking, I, I literally like look up and I was probably carrying my skateboard and I had to jump out of the way, you know, cause he was like, like hauling ass, you know, and I, I we exchanged words and out of my mouth, it just came, well, fucking destroy the handicap. Oh, my God. 
And I mean, I wasn't serious about it. You know, we were just talking shit in this guy yeah. yelling at each other. It wasn't even like serious, but uh, that, that moment stuck with me, you know? And so, um, so then I just, I just ran with it, you know? And also there was just at that time, punk rock was about, you know, there was shock value was still a big thing in punk rock. It's hard to, to put it into terms that people can understand. But when I was, uh, I pierced my ear when I was a freshman in high school and, uh, and I would get, uh, jumped and, uh, you know, assaulted and yelled at, uh, pretty much maybe not jumped every day, yelled at every day, threatened every day. Uh, you know, I, I dyed my hair blue and I had an earring and it was, uh, and it was, it was hard. It was dangerous. You know, you did that back then in 1979 and you, you, you know, things were different back then as far as that goes, you know? Uh, and so, uh, you know, that was, extremely shocking, you know, uh, you know, to have blue hair and to be a guy with your ear pierced, uh-huh. you know, that was like, it was a big deal because you put yourself um, at risk. Right. You know, it, it was absolutely dangerous to run around looking like that, uh-huh. you know? And so, uh, and I think that those of us, we were very much, you know, taking that to the next level, you know, being as shocking as we could in your face as we could, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that you, you had songs like destroy the handicap, crippled children suck by the meat men. Um, you know, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of satire and like just total, like over the top, fuck you, you know? Right. Um, I was wondering if you could ex- uh, describe some of the clubs that were some of your favorite ones that were in those early days. Like what's, what was Winterland like? Like what are some of these ones that I never got to go to? Like Winterland stuck out, right? Well, except for, it was a big club. Like I liked smaller, you know, I mean, one of the coolest places that they did shows was the Temple Beautiful. That was uh, the Jim Jones Temple. So when Jim Jones went to Guyana, that his church sort of sat there empty for, for a while. And they actually started throwing punk rock shows there okay. for a very short period of time. That was interesting. The deaf club was an interesting place because it was literally a, a, a club for deaf people, but, but they could feel the vibrations Vibration. through the floor. And so they actually started letting punk rock shows happen because, you know, it was for them, it was like an experience. That's so amazing. the deaf club, deaf club was cool. Um, Where was that in the uh, East Bay or SF? No, that was San, San Francisco. Oh. There, there weren't a lot of, uh, they did shows at the international cafe, like early on Keystone Berkeley, like saw, you know, they did, those are bigger shows. Like I saw, mm-hmm. Like Dead Kennedys, when they started getting, you know, kind of popular, they would have, but uh, the Plasmatics, so the Plasmatics at the Keystone Berkeley, it's fucking, that was the loudest band I ever fucking saw, was the Plasmatics. Plasmatics. Yeah, they were just so loud, so mind-blowing. They did did an in-store at Universal Records. So uh, Universal Records on Telegraph Avenue is like this underground uh, record store. 
and it was our hangout. It was like, you know, if you go up to Telegraph, you'd go hang out at Universal Records uh, or go play pinball at Silver Ball. But the plasmatics came through and they did it in store. But basically they just showed up and we all got drunk. You know, we all just, you know, caught beer and we're just hanging out at the store with the plasmatics drinking. Uh, and then like Susie and the Banshees came through the Universal Records and just hung out. They were a little more. They're a little more uptight than the plasmatics yeah. were. <laughs> I can imagine plasmatics but, by all time. I think for me, uh, when I really started, like, uh, instead of, I mean, I was, I, don't, I wasn't really sneaking out anymore. I would just leave. But when I was really going to shows like every weekend, the, the Mab and uh, a little later on, the, yeah, the Mab and the On Broadway uh, and 10th Street Hall. 10th Street Hall was uh, on 10th Street. It was a hall and Paul Ratt put on shows at 10th Street Hall. And it was, it was big and it was underground at the same time. You know, he would have like, it, uh, you know, eight, 10 bands, you know, bringing in bands from LA or touring bands. Uh, and it was, uh, it's funny because I don't, I don't really know how big it really was in my mind. It was like, it was, it was big, you know, and it would seem like there would be, you know, a, a couple hundred people, like two, 300 people slam dancing had started and it was just completely uh, insane, you know? Uh, so Tentry Hall was one of my favorite, favorite places. And then underground, like, like I said, the sound of music, sound of music was super gnarly uh, it was, it was a bar. And so the drinking age was 21, you know, even back then in California. Right. And so we were like kids, uh, but they had a parking lot next to the sound of music. So we would hang out in the parking lot and, and drink, uh, even if we couldn't get into the show yeah. and they, they had a backstage room that was behind the stage. And, you could sometimes sneak in and watch the bands from behind, you know? And so there was, uh, there was, I don't know, a handful of us kids that would go to the sound of music regularly, probably it's probably like 20 or 30, you know, 15, 16, 17 year old kids that would all hang out in the parking lot and try and sneak in and get kicked out. And, uh, you know, th those were some of my, favorite places to hang out. Where do you think Feng played the most in the Bay Area? Did they play at Gilman or uh, Farm or, or on Broadway? Which which club did they probably play at the most? Probably the on Broadway, I would say. If, yeah, if we if you had to we probably played there more than more than more than anywhere else. But we played we played a lot of shows back then, you know, uh, we played pretty often became a, a regular, you know, band that, that would get booked. Um, and we, you know, we started putting out records and then we started touring. And so, and I had a, a lot of friends in the, in the East Bay, you know, there was uh, like the BTU, which is like a loose knit kind of uh, Berkeley trailers union. They were all friends of mine, and they would all, you know, like when we would play, they would all come out. So no matter where we'd play, we'd bring at least, you know, 30, 40, 50 people, 
you know, aside from just the regular, you know, regular shows. But the thing about it is that when you had a show back then, everyone would go anyway. Right. You know? Yeah, it wasn't really mattering where you were playing. It was who was playing. Yeah. If there was a punk rock show, everyone would go. Yeah. So I, th- I talked to you this before, but I think it's kind of important to me. Um, the farm was a pretty important place for me because uh, it was right off the 101 and I lived in the peninsula. So I'd take the 7B, it would drop me off right there. There's the park. And what kids today might not know is there's a Petrero skate park there now. Right next to it is the farm. That building that's next to the skate park used to have punk shows. And I spent a lot, I, I've seen more shows there than any other place, probably. I, I would say maybe on Broadway, but I think the farm, just because it was easier and we heard about them all the time. And but once that, the farm really started getting going, they had shows there, like good shows every weekend. It seemed, yeah. You know? And I'm a little later, like I'm probably 84. 85, 86, I think is when it started, maybe. In my recollection, every Friday, if they were in town, verbal abuse and DRI were on the bill. And then it was just whoever else was coming through. But uh, I, I, to, I, I would put my right hand out of whatever you got to do to swear. I would say I've seen DRI and verbal abuse more than any other band. Like they, they must have played a hundred times in front of me or something like it's, it was nuts. Like looking back at it, I'm like, am I dramatizing or were they just every Friday at the farm? Like, here they are again. <laughs> I mean, that was when Scotty was in verbal abuse and it was VA rocks your liver. And, uh, yeah. you know, it was before DRI kind of changed too. Like it was just, I don't know, to me, for me, that was it. Like when we look back and we say, this isn't punk, that's punk and blah, blah, blah. You know, the old guy that never wanted to be the old guy and now he's the old guy saying, back in my day. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I saw False Prophets, I think it was, Burning Bibles in there. Like we just saw things that were like life, kind of life-changing in a weird way, you would say. Like just like opening your eyes to like, especially for suburban kids, right? It's like, what is going on? I need more of this. Like, I can't figure this out, but it's fucking bananas. And uh, the the crew, I think his name was Theo, maybe the the guy that worked and he was stage diving. And then, but he was Theo also Jack. Security. He was skater yeah. Theo. He later went on to become a, a tattoo artist, Theo Jack. Right. So like, I don't know, like I was, have you, um, seen any documentaries on that kind of stuff or anything there's there's a farm documentary oh there is yeah yeah it came out i it's actually really good you you of all people you definitely should check it out it might be it might be on youtube i know that it was out for a while and then i think they kind of had pulled it back and i i I remember just a little while ago i heard that they're going to do some sort of a re-release you know of it uh but Cool. It has, yeah, I'll check. I'll look for yeah it. you should yeah look it up see if you can find it on youtube i know that there's at least some of it's on youtube you could find you might not be able to find the whole thing but and, and then of course they had there. the day day on the dirts and day at the farm where it was like i mean bad brains rkl fang like 
uh, of course, DRI, verbal abuse. I, I, my mind's kind of circle jerks, probably like whoever was. It was just, I don't know. It felt like kind of like a festival, but not yeah. a festival. It was like the punk shows were that caliber where it wasn't just one good band headlining and a bunch of shitty bands. It was like from beginning to end, it felt like it was like kind of like all-star caliber it seemed right like and i think that was pretty normal at the farm you would have like i look at flyers from back then i'm like god damn yeah what a fucking lineup i'm like right. holy shit you know yeah and uh yeah the farm had some some great shows and it was it was big too i mean it, it was like you know there was there would be 500 people in there you know and uh you're talking about theo and uh i I, I still remember this today. We were playing at the farm and, you know, the, the stage was kind of high at the farm in comparison to a lot of other clubs, you know, and uh, we're playing and Theo takes off across the stage and he starts running on people's heads. And to the point where it was packed, but I, I think the whole band even stopped because, you know, he, he made it like 50 feet <laughs> out into the crowd on just running on. I mean, Theo was a small guy, you know, and he was, he was a good skater, you know, it's just like, but it was just mind blowing how far he made it running on people's heads till finally he drops into the fucking, into the pit, you know, but uh, yeah, that was, yeah. Uh, that was the farm. The farm is a great place. And, yeah. And it was epic shows, you know? Yeah. I, I, we had a blast there. Was the Winterland where you saw, was that the Misfits show that was like somebody's head got cracked open or something like so that? So Winterland closed down and they had, uh, well, they had like the Fillmore. Uh, but so the Fillmore, which is uh, the Fillmore again. It's, that's Fillmore, where it was, right? The Fillmore closed and uh, Wes Robinson, who had Ruthie's Inn in that uh, club in, in the East yeah. Bay, he started booking shows at the Fillmore. And so uh, they had made a stage on the floor. You know, they didn't have like the big stage in the back. They made a stage on the floor and they had, uh, and they had, they had great shows there too. It didn't last super long. And the whole thing, it was cool because it was like, it was all falling down and in disrepair. So it added to the ambiance of, you know, like just fucked up punk rock, you know? Yeah. But uh the Misfits came through and it was, uh, I've never really experienced it. I definitely had never experienced it like this before then. There was a real uh, negative uh, uh, attitude towards the Misfits in the Bay Area before they mm -hmm. came. Uh, I, I listened to the Misfits, you know, before they came and they weren't like my favorite band, but, you know, I, I liked them. I wasn't a huge fan, but um like I said, didn't matter who was playing everyone, you know, you, you went to every show, you know? And so I don't know who played before them, but uh, I just remember a lot of people saying, Oh, the kiss fits, you know, because they wore makeup, makeup and it was right. like a shtick band, you know? And for whatever reason that was really looked down upon in the Bay area. I don't know why, but mm. when they started playing, it was very normal for people to throw beer cans, for people to spit sure. at you. You know, that was like part of the deal, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it was all 
part of punk rock in you know in good fun so to speak you know and if you if you didn't like it then you wouldn't be there anyway but as soon as they started playing people were like hurling shit at them like it wasn't you know and we're like fuck you and fuck the kiss fits and they were like pelting them with with beer cans you know and so i kind of just watched and i'm like wow this you know it's like kind of weird you know like i'd never seen and like i we all knew each other you know all my friends you know yeah i don't know if it was they might have made it into their third song i don't even know if they made it in their third song might have been their second song and they're getting like pelted and it, it, it's not like ha 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 fun punk rock. This is like, you know, a, very aggro. And okay. uh, so finally uh, the drummer jumps up and he, you know, I, he probably got nailed in the face with something, you know, and he got pissed. He jumps up from behind the kit and he comes out and he's going to like to swing on somebody. And Kelly, who was, uh, you know, he's East Bay punk rock kid, you know, and he was always, uh, as far as like all the East Bay, he was one of the, our better street fighters. Dude was, mm-hmm. uh, he was a little older than us and he'd been, he'd been around, he, you know, he, he was a real good street fighter. And that dude came like to go swing on somebody and Kelly just fucking blasted him, you know, hit him hard and knocked him back onto the stage. And, uh, and at that point, uh, Doyle takes his bass and just fucking whips it out and comes and he hits Tim Sutleth over the head, you know, yeah. and Timmy was our boy, you know, it was, uh, Timmy, Timmy was probably 14 or 15. He was like, I mean, we were all young, but you know, he was a kid and Do- Doyle was a kid. He, Doyle was probably 17 when he did that, you know? Uh. And, uh, but he hit Timmy and then everything just stopped and then they ran, <laughs> they just yeah. dropped everything because we all at that point went for them. And there was this really narrow staircase that went up to a backstage room. And Wes Robinson had security that worked these shows. And there were all these older, pretty big, you know, black guys from Oakland that, you know, we all knew because they right. always worked security. But when it kicked off, uh, those guys ran off the stage and security just like dipped in and like wedged themselves in this staircase, you know? So we destroyed all their equipment, you know, we smashed all. In fact, I had the skull from the headstock of the base that uh, I ended up giving to my girlfriend at the time, Denise, she had it. She probably still has it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, from, you know, we completely destroyed all their equipment because they literally like dropped everything. It just ran. Yeah. So then there's this big standoff at the, at the staircase and we're telling the bouncers like, look, you know, just go, just walk away. And they're like, you know, like we know you guys, this is our job. You know, we can't just leave. But they said, but look, they got to come outside sometime, you know? And so, they finally, you know, we didn't want to fight the bouncers. We knew those guys, you know, sure. and we're like, all right. So they, they talked us into waiting for them outside. And so I was outside till nine in the morning, you know, and I know there were people there till noon or one in the afternoon uh, no that way. waited for. So they were trapped in the elite oh, club until like the next afternoon before it was before they could actually leave because there was, you know, people waiting outside to 
beat them. Yeah. And that's why the Misfits didn't come back and play in the Bay Area for a long, long, long time. You know? That's right. Yeah, my friend, yeah. I have a couple of friends that were at that show and they did, they talked. I think, what's his name, Timmy? Yeah. Yeah, I think that guy got really messed up. Like he might have to, I don't know, something happened to his head when he got hit. He got a hundred and like a hundred stitches, but he was, he was okay. It okay. didn't like give him permanent brain damage, you know I mean? Uh, yeah. But it, it fucked him up at the time. I mean, he, you Fuck. know, it like just split his head open. He shaved his head at the time, you know, and it just fucking, you know, and at the time I was pissed, you know, I'm sure if we'd have got a hold of those guys at that time, we would have beat them badly Right. You know, uh, you know, you get older and, you know, you realize, dude, those guys were scared and they had reason to be scared. Like the crowd was, you know, fucking for whatever reason, looking to looking for blood, you know. And uh, and like I said, I think Doyle at the time was only 17 years old himself. You know, he fucking probably. Yeah did the, you know, out of panic and fear did the only thing he could think of to do, you know? So, uh, you know, you, you get a little older, you start realizing it's, it's not all black and white. And, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure those guys were fucking terrified, you know? Yeah. So. Huh. Crazy one. Like out of all the bands you've played with, I mean, this might be way too hard of a question, but I was wondering if there's, any bands that stick out as like it, maybe you you saw Bad Brains for the first time because they you opened for them or something like that where it was just a magical moment where dude this band from Tucson no one's heard of or whatever it is you know what I mean? Well, uh, uh, the first time I saw DOA, uh, you know, now I I've been to some shows before, but uh, DOA it was when it was uh, it was Randy Rampage Chuck Biscuits. <clears throat> Dave Gregg, I'd never, they played in Berkeley at the, it was like the International Cafe. I'd seen shows, you know, like, uh, but I'd never seen a band that animated. Like they were all over the place, you know, like fucking jumping and, you know, and they were like right there with, you know, it was a very small place. And it was just like, it was such next level you know these they were just uh, amazing amazing musicians you know they're amazing band but just their their presence you know and uh mm. it set the bar you know for it's like wow like that's you know that's who i want to be like you know uh and then and then of course the bad brains you know i mean it's like you see the bad brains <laughs> you know it's like yeah you know live their stage presence to show hr is just fucking mind-blowing Fuck. you know yeah um uh, but uh other bands you know like tales of terror rat's ass would do he, you know he would also do like standing backflips and he they were yeah. tales of terror one of those bands they were either mind they would put on shows and it, they would either be too fucked up and it would be total shit show or they would be one of the best bands you've ever seen in your life. You know, it, it could go either way. Okay, you know, yeah. They put on some incredible, incredible shows. And it's unfortunate. I mean, they were one of those bands that crashed and burned early. They put out one record. Uh, Lion got killed, the guitar player, in a just a random street fight. 
you know, they all just crashed and burned. And it was really unfortunate because they were uh, an incredible live band. Certainly DOA and, and the Bad Brains and then, you know, Tales of Terror, uh, you know, as far as just like live shows, it was just, they were like the pinnacle, you know? Oh, yeah. What about, uh, like, I don't really know how to talk about it too much, but like we got to get into the prison a little bit at least because um, I have some questions about like, it's crazy to me that you were in prison before Nirvana was a band and you came out and Kurt Cobain was dead already and they're like a legendary band that covered Fang and right. you kind of missed that whole thing. And so yeah. stuff, there was, like, you were in prison for how long? Seven years? Seven years. I, I fell in 89, and I got out in 96. There's a lot of bands that covered a few of your guys' songs and stuff yeah. that are pretty legendary bands. I, I just wonder what that feeling is like. It's weird for me because people now talk about bands selling out, and that wasn't really talked about when we were kids, you know, like in young punk rock bands, but it was just... It was a lifestyle. It was just like who we were. Sort of when we were like, if a big label had offered us money, I don't even know, you know, like to go on, you know, I, I don't know. It's like, uh, dude, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And, you know, uh, I, I don't, you know, like early on, I mean, all that obviously changed. But since I was so removed from everything that was going on, I, mm. I kind of didn't even know, you know, uh -huh. I mean, it's, it's not like in, uh, in, in prison, you, you know, hear anything about like the underground music scene. But I, I will say that I was in Soledad and, uh, and Soledad's a fucking, it's a hard prison. It was, it was, it was fucking gnarly. Uh, my celly had a radio and they had a radio station down there that played uh, rock and sort of newer rock just during the day they like it was just in the salinas valley it's kind of a in the middle of nowhere and oh. i'm listening to the radio and uh and and i heard you know the beginnings of the nirvana mm -hmm. song and i'm like i'm like dude this is punk rock on the fucking radio i'm like who is this you know yeah. I, I was just sitting in my cell kind of like mind blown that uh, you know, a punk rock band was actually getting commercial radio play, you know, and, uh, and that was my first experience with, with Nirvana, you know, it was just like hearing them in that cell going, holy shit, they're like playing punk rock on the fucking, you know, on the radio. Uh, but like you said, by the time I, I paroled, uh, Kurt had already killed himself, you know, and, yeah. uh, uh, Seattle always had a, a really cool scene. You know, we, we played in Seattle a lot. Uh, in the eighties and they had sort of like the, the early like malfunction, you know, which one of the, you know, they later on broke out to like mother love bone. And mm. like one of the guys went on to be in pearls, you know, that was like, that was starting to fester, you know, in like 84, 85, you know, and like Mark arm and mud honey and all those guys yeah. were around, you know, and, and, and came up and, and hung out. And, I think Fang was a, uh, well, you're talking about DRI. So DRI put out that, that 
17 song, seven inch or whatever, you know? Yeah. And so it was like in, you know, from 83, 84, 85, everyone was trying to play faster and faster and faster. Yeah. A lot of bands were really, you know, DR and DR was sort of like the pinnacle because they could yeah. play really fast, you know? Right. But uh, that was one thing that sort of made Fang different is that we, you know, we didn't play fast. We were kind of like this slow, weird, dirgy punk rock band, you know, not quite as dirgy as Flipper, but we'd go up to Seattle, we'd play there, we'd hang out with those guys and it jived with what they were starting to do, you know? And so I think that's why I'm like, Kurt was, he probably came and saw Fang when he was, you know, 14 or 15, you know, when yeah. he came through. I'm assuming, you know, and uh, so being a a 16 or 17 year old kid, you know, writing uh, those songs and going out there and playing, there was no way I could have imagined that uh, what we were doing then would later influence bands like Nirvana and Metallica and Green Day, who were some of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah. You know, and so that's kind of just like a, a very, I, I, it's still mind blowing to me, you know, because we're just a bunch of fucking, you know, especially me. I was just a fuck up. You know? you I know? mean, I guess you toured so much, but I was going to say, like, to me, Metallica and Green Day make sense because it's Bay Area. They probably like yeah. saw you at the Gilman or, or oh, whatever, yeah. you know, yeah. but like for like Butthole Surfers, maybe or Nirvana or like. Yeah, Butthole Surfers, like because uh, uh, Texas, there was a we played in Texas a bunch and some of the guys in Tales of Terror moved down there. And I started uh, selling acid down there. I started going down there and, and selling acid. So I'd sell acid to the butthole surfers. Oh, so yeah. there was a, yeah, there was like a, definitely a history and a connection uh, between Texas and, and, and us, you know, bands like the Hickoids and the butthole surfers when they were, you know, early on the big boys, mm -hmm. we started going to Texas. We played down there pretty early on and and we'd come back because austin had had a really cool scene yeah austin's always been kind of like the one no disrespect to texas but austin's just always been my a lot favorite more than anywhere else there yeah, right. <laughs> uh did you when you were in prison did you write anything did you were you even thinking about music or were you was your head in a whole different area uh so not at first. <laughs> and then um, I, I, when I got to Soledad, they had a, a really good arts and correction program there. And it, the newer prisons didn't have that kind of yeah, action, like a lot of Did the newer ones. Did you bounce ones, around or were you Soledad? Yeah, well, first I was in San Quentin and then I was in Soledad. So Soledad had a really good arts and corrections program. And so I started going to high school because like, I you know, had never... <laughs> graduated high school yeah so you know it's like that was one thing they offered it's like you want to go to high school you know uh and so i i went to high school in soledad and they had an arts and corrections program and so there was a a couple other guys there that uh that i that i started that i got together and started playing music with oh and and so but <laughs> that that ended ended pretty rough. Uh, pretty rough. It ended horribly, uh, really. What happened was um, 
it's kind of a long story, but uh, the people who, you know, prison is very uh, segregated, you know, and it's, and it's very much, uh, you know, like these guys control the chow hall and this click, you know, has this action. And, um, and I was still kind of green, you know, so I had put this band together and um, the Muslims up to that, well, they controlled the music room and I didn't know that, you know, and so I, uh, and nobody told me that. So they were already upset that I had just sort of come in and organized this band. But this, I had, I had no idea that that was the case. Nobody, you know, said anything about this. I've already had, was creating enemies that I didn't know about by doing this. And at the same time, so there was a, a guy, his name was Jack and he was uh, what's called a free staff. You know, there's guards and then they're free staff, free staff are like a chef or, you know, uh, he ran the arts and corrections program, you know? So he wasn't a guard. He worked in the prison, you know, to, you know, do a specific job. His job oh. was to run the arts and corrections program. Okay. And, so I was also uh, taking a writing class from this woman and her and I got along really well. You know, I, uh, she was an awesome writer. Her name was Claire, but uh, Jack, I think suspected there was something going on between me and this woman, although there wasn't. And uh, he really, I think had the hots for her, you know? And so I think he was jealous of my relationship with her even though it was completely, you know, there was nothing going on other than, you know, a student and teacher that had a good rapport. So what ended up happening, it was July 4th and they're going to do a yard show. So all the bands that practice can go out and play a couple songs on the yard. And, uh, and so we got us Jack's like, you guys want to play? We're like, sure. We'll go do, we were just going to do one song. It's called electric chair later came out on a record we put out but we go to play our one song and the way this uh the way it's set up in at the central yard uh you come out of the cell blocks and there's a little yard that has a boxing ring and a stage and you walk through that to go through another gate to get to the big yard so if they have bands play there if there's a boxing match people can stand in the big yard and watch it you know but oh. you're actually separated from the big yard by a, by a fence you know you're in okay. a small yard so we go out there and play. What I didn't know was that uh, the Muslims had told Jack, they had dropped a kite saying that if my band played on the yard, that they were going to kill me. But I didn't know this. And what he was supposed to do when he gets a kite like that is take it to the guards and say, hey, there's a problem. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know? But because he didn't like me, he didn't say anything to anybody and he went ahead and put our, my band on anyway. So we're playing it was one song. We, we fucked up the song. It, you know, the guitar player ended up shooting a bunch of heroin right before we played. <laughs> anyway, it's a shit show. Prison. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so we, we, we play our one song and all of a sudden there's, all these dudes standing on the other side of the fence and they're all like staring at me. And I'm like, this is 
bad. Like something <laughs> is not right here. They're all in the yard. And this one guy, he was a, he was a Pyru blood that I actually knew from uh, the writing class. He came up to me and he goes, Hey, Sammy, he goes, uh, those guys, they want you, you know, I'm like, why? He goes, bro. He goes, I, I don't know. And I shouldn't even be talking to you, but just like, uh, you know, uh, I'm just letting you know, you got a problem, you know? And so I went up to the fence and at that time there was maybe 20 or 30 guys on the other side of the fence. And they're like, we're going to kill you. Da, 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 da. I'm like, for, like, what the fuck? And they're so the, uh, the people that had a problem with me, they worked the crowd and, and said that I was saying things that I didn't say. And, uh, so this started building up and I'm trying to talk to them. And finally there was a, a guy that lived in my cell block and he was uh, class of 72. So it's big dude. Uh, he'd been on death row. And when they repealed death row, he'd come off death row. Uh, he had a couple of prison killings under his belt and he's standing on the other side of that fence going, I know where you live. I'm going to fucking kill you. Right. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm fucked, you know, I'm like, okay. So at that point, uh, I, I pull the guitar player over and I'm like, look, you got to go into the yard. You got to tell my celly that I'm coming in the yard, but these guys are going to try and kill me, you know, because I, at that point I figure like, if I don't deal with this now, somebody's going to come up and they're going to fucking stab me in the, you know, in the neck from behind. Right. You know, so if it's, if it's going to go on, if it's going to happen, then let's, let's deal with it right now. So uh, so he went in, he got my cell at about four or five other dudes and they came and they met me at the gate and we're trying. So I come into the big yard and we're trying to get to the far corner of the yard where all the homeboys are, you know, but it's like on the far side of the yard. And as soon as I come in the yard, they see me coming in the yard. So they start massing up and, uh, it ends up being a face-off. We had about maybe hundred, a uh, hundred dudes on either side facing off. Oh, right. And you can hear the gunners. They're all locking and loading because there's like no warning shots. They're going to just, they're waiting for it to kick off so they can start shooting us. I, I'll never forget this dude, uh, Randy from Bakersfield. Like it, he came up behind me, tapped me on the back. He hands me a piece because we had knives buried all over the yard. So everyone's, digging up their knives, you know, and, uh, you know, like that dude handed me a piece. And so uh, we couldn't go any farther, but the homeboys had come up. So it's this huge face off and it's going back and forth. We're like, we're going to kill that dude. It's like, you're not killing, you kill him. You got to take on us all. And it's going back and forth. All these cops are coming out on the yard, but they're staying far away from us because they know if it kicks off, bullets are going to start, you know, flying. And, uh, at that point, even on that walk, I, I, I figured I was dead. Like no matter what, no matter what, I was never, I was going to die right there on that yard. You know, I didn't know how, I don't know if it was going to be shot or, you know, if I was going to be stabbed to death, but I, I knew that there was no way I was going to walk off that yard. You know, that is probably the most scared I've ever been in my life. You know, you know, I think you can get to a point in fear where, you just sort of shut down, you know, and then you just do whatever you got to do, you know? And so we're faced off. Uh, 
like everybody's got knives. It's going back and forth. Uh, but they didn't really want to kick it off because everybody knew once we started fighting that they'd just start shooting all of us, you yeah. know? And so finally it was decided that it was going to be me and one dude one-on-one, you know? So I'm like, fuck, I might actually live today, you know, like who knows, maybe I won't die right now, you know? And so they picked one guy and, and we squared up, you know, he's got a knife, I got a knife and we're about to start fighting, but you know, everyone's looking around and like I said, all the cops, you know, they're all sitting there with their mini 14s all trained on us. And they're like, you know what, let's, everybody will just back it off. And, and me and this kid, they'll, uh, we'll meet in the shower later and we'll handle it, you know? So this whole time, Jack Bowers, the guy who ran the arts and corrections program, who sort of orchestrated all this by not doing anything about it. He, he's waiting for me to get killed, you know, and he sees that I'm not going to get killed right then. So he goes over to the cops now and he's like, yeah, it was McBride who started all that, you know? So we're walking back and all of a sudden they're like, inmate McBride, uh, report to the yard check. That's where all the cops were. So I'm like, fuck, like hand my knife off to somebody. They gaffle me up. They arrest me for inciting a riot. Uh, they arrest me on the yard and then they take me to solitary confinement. Uh, so I walked off the yard that day uh, and uh, I ended up in solitary confinement for five months uh, behind that, but I didn't die. Uh, but that was me trying to introduce punk rock to the yard in Soledad. And so it, uh, I didn't really play any other music for the rest of my prison career. Uh, uh, you know, I did, I wrote songs, right. but, but I never really, I was, uh, never really tried to put another band together after that, you know, that's heavy. Yeah. It was, no. it was intense. Have you thought about writing a book? Someday, you know, yeah. uh, someday I, I, I'd like to do that. You know, it's, uh, there's a, it seems like you have so many stories that are just like high level stories. Man. <laughs> Someday, I, you know, I, I, I there, a lot of people. It, it's cool because there's so many. You know, a lot of people have written some good books, and I know uh, someday I need to just sit down and, and start doing it. So I'm, mm. I'm sure. Uh, hopefully, if I don't die in some weird accident or something, I'll, I'll get around to it at some point. And your memory seems to be doing all right. I re- like you can re- like remember back, like I have a hard time sometimes in the early stages, like, yeah, you know, it could have been just a little dramatized maybe. <laughs> some shit I can actually remember pretty well. Uh, and then some shit, somebody will tell me a story. I'm like, mm. I have, you know, don't remember it at all before I write a book, I would definitely reach out to a bunch of people and, and hit them up and say, Hey, you, you know, you, you remember this, you, you know, or, you know, yeah. Yeah. No. Or like make a documentary or something where like you can get everybody's stories together. And then like out of the 40 stories, one is pretty consistent and you can kind of mold it together or whatever. So I was always thinking like, let's ask this guy. Cause he'll remember, you know, whatever. he might remember. Yeah. You know. 
But, but I, I mean, the other thing is, is that, you know, we're getting older. Uh, a lot mm. of us around back then are not with us anymore. So, you know, that that's, is, uh, it's, that's kind of why I'm doing all these interviews really is like the time is now, like, I want to know the stories now before, like, you know, I've had a few super close friends pass and I had amazing times with them, but I, I'd love to have had more, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, Dude, I, like, I, like Jake, I mean, you yeah. know, I, when Jake died, I'm like, fuck, you know, uh, it, I wish, I mean, Jake had a lot of stories and a lot of people knew a lot of them, but it, it would have been, would have been great if somebody had actually spent a consistent amount of time with him because he was a fucking nut, you know? He, he yeah. Was, he was, was he wasn't did you get to talk to him much at all after like in the later years yeah i mean i i i would go and i, I would run into him and see him you know and i mean i i'd known him for a long time a you long know and time, yeah i i actually went um a couple of years ago i had a tattoo shop in uh in alameda and then i had huh. another one in oakland and so Every year we got on board to do these benefits for the Alameda skate park. A couple of years in a row, I would go hit up Jake and I would hit up Jimmy and, you know, uh, people that I knew, you know, uh, Shrugi from Ace Trucks, you yeah. know, and uh, hit up all the old homies and say, hey, yeah. can you guys fucking, you know, help us out? We're doing a benefit. And, uh, you know, and, and they were always super awesome, you mm. know, you know, uh, and they would always like help out and throw, you know, throw me a bunch of swag that we could give away mm -hmm. and raffle off. And they would, you know, put it up on the Thrasher site and, you know, J Jimmy would throw it up on a deluxe site, you know? So, uh, so I was able to get to see Jake, uh, a, a, you know, and hang out with him a few times, which I'm glad about, you know, mm -hmm. because I think the, the last time I, I had actually hung out with Jake, before then had been maybe it's probably like 10 years ago and mm. uh, we were hanging out at motorhead i was sober you know uh, at the time and jake was not sober you know <laughs> and uh, we were sitting talking hanging out and he's super fucked up as jake often was you know and mm. but i kind of turn and i'm i'm talking to this woman and i turn back and Jake's pissed some guy off, you know, and all of a sudden they're, they're fucking fighting and, but Jake's way too fucked up, you know? And so this guy yeah. fucking has him down on the ground, you know? And I, and I run over and I, I grabs dude and I pull him up and I pull it back. And I'm like, you don't want to, I said, you need to leave Jake alone and you do not want to fight me, you know? And the guy's like, okay. you know. And so he actually yeah. like, you know, so I had to like pick Jake up. You know? yeah. And uh, uh, so I'm glad that's not my last memory of Jake. I'm glad, you know, that we got to hang out and, and, and bullshit. Uh, and I saw him at a, a, a skate event down at the, in the lower bottoms too. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it was one of the last times I saw him. Yeah. They got, a, they got a DIY little uh, skate park there now. Yeah. Jake actually lived like two blocks from there uh, with Ramona back in like with a vert ramp in a warehouse like it's so weird he was like dude i used to live like two blocks right there i was like god damn it's insane he was my right hand man oh wow so I, i'm hurt yeah you've heard 
<laughs> and witnessed a lot yeah, of witness. uh, I, I, yeah we i it's cool because i have stories for days mostly stuff that would piss off the average person but kind of just me and a skateboard like, like i'm working at thrasher i'm with jake this is insane like I, this is kind of rad i know it sucks but it's kind of rad you know no, it's fucking yeah it's super rad you know right so I mean, how long uh, have you how long have you been sober for 13 years 13 yeah so i had the first time i got sober after i'd been uh in prison for about five years i got sober uh and then uh i, I got out and i stayed sober that time about six years and then i fell off the wagon wow. and i was running amok again for about eight years before oh, really? i was yeah before i was able to get sober again and uh I'm very lucky I was able to come back. Uh, I'm very lucky I didn't end up back in prison. Um, and uh, I mean, it, because I should have, you know, I, I went straight back to straight back to crime and uh, I definitely should have gone back to prison, but I just, I got lucky, got real lucky. You know, is there, is there something that, I don't know, this is always a tough question, but I've been sober five uh, years and uh Mine's mostly, mine is alcohol. You know, a lot of friends have been dealing with addiction problems and all that stuff. And I'm always curious to people that are successfully staying sober. Is there something like when you came out and you had eight years of like falling off again, was there something that like you grabbed onto that like, I mean, a lot of people say rock bottom, which I don't think is always true. I think a lot of times you don't have to hit rock bottom to be successful. I'm just wondering, is there some method to the madness? Like, you know, your self-destructive urges, how do you fight them and, and stay the course? You know what I mean? I'm, I know that's a huge question. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's weird because, you know, you talk about hitting rock bottom. When I finally, like, made the decision that's like uh, – I'm going to try and get sober, trying to get clean. It wasn't like um, I'd had way worse days, you mm. know? So I don't know. I mean, the first time you're kind of forced into it because you're in prison, like you pretty much. Well, to... that was actually, I, I mean, when I was in prison, I was shooting dope. I was drinking Pruno. I was running dope on the yard. So, oh, so that's not the case. I, I I was getting loaded for the first five years of, of my prison term. Oh, uh, wow. It wasn't till I had like a, a moment of clarity five years in uh, that was like a game changer, you know, and, and that was a real aha moment. You know, uh, I was, uh, I was on my first conjugal visit. I'd gotten married to this right. woman. Uh, it, it took a long time to get married. Like I'd spent a bunch of time in the hole, uh, you know, so she, we got together after I'd been down for about a year, but it took me, uh, I, I was down for five years before I got a conjugal visit. It took a long time and a bunch of shit to actually get a conjugal visit. But it's my first conjugal visit. I'm sitting in this little apartment. I'd been transferred. I dropped points. I went from a, a max uh, from a level four prison to a level three prison uh, and I'm sitting in this apartment with my wife, you know, super institutionalized, really in my mind at that point, I, I never thought I was going to get out of prison. 
I had signed up for a, a lifetime of, uh, being on the yard, so to speak, you know, and I'm sitting in there with my wife and I, I had this, this moment, I'm like, holy shit. Like, I don't have to like spend the rest of my life on the yard. Like maybe I can do things differently, you know? Mm. And uh, that was a huge game changer for me. You know, that was like a real aha moment that changed everything. Uh, and if I hadn't had that, I'd still be in prison, no doubt, you right. know, because I was very much involved in all kinds of fucked up shit in prison. You know, I just hadn't really been caught a whole lot, you know, other than I spent some time in the hole for, for trying to do punk rock. But as far as like dope, you know, running dope or uh, violence or any of the other things that I'd been involved in in there, I hadn't really, you know, gotten caught yet, uh-huh. you know, but uh I hadn't gotten caught yet, but I, I didn't care if I got caught. Like I'd signed up to live this lifestyle, you know, be in prison for the rest of my life in my mind, you know, and then I had this moment, but the second time, me and I had a a crime partner. I was down in Texas and we were, we were doing armed robberies and we were doing collections and this guy, uh, you know, he'd been to prison in Texas before and we were, we were, we were very, we're, we're very bad. You know, sometimes you hang out with people and, uh, and it just clicks in a really horrible way. And that was, that was me and this guy, we were, we were not good for each other. We, we were also not that successful as criminals because we had, we had one gun between the two of us. And so we would often, unless we were doing collections, we would take turns, you know, one of us would take the gun and go hit a lick, you know? And so it was his turn to go pull a robbery because we were almost out of money. And, uh, and he went out, to go do an armed robbery and he got caught. And there was a woman down there that, you know, he called her from jail saying, Hey, let Sammy know I got busted and da, 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 da. And this woman came and she, uh, she sat me down and she's like, she's like, you've got to get out of here. I was, we were, and I was in Houston, Texas at the time. She's like, somebody's going to kill you or you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. You've got to get out of here. And uh, I don't know what it was because so many people had told me before, dude, you're fucking up, you know, mm-hmm. where are you going? You know, uh, you have kids, you know, what are you doing? Uh, and I don't know what it was, but uh, I was, I heard her. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, and it was just like another aha moment, like, holy shit, you know? Uh, and so I, I ended up, it took a little while, but I ended up making my way uh, back to California finally, you know, and then, uh, and then it was, uh, and then I had to detox, mm-hmm. you know, cause I was a hardcore heroin addict. So uh, Nikki Sicky from sick pleasure and the original yeah. center for verbal abuse, verbal. Uh-huh. him and this woman, Janine, she's now, she's now dead. May she rest in peace, but they, babysat me she had a room in her house and so i boarded up the windows in this room and uh, and i put a deadbolt in the door so you had to have a key to get out and uh nikki and this chick you know i mean i nikki and i boarded up the windows together but uh they locked me in that room for a month oh. uh and they would come in and change the bucket you know and I mean, it's not like I was really eating, but they would try and bring me water. Because for me, if I get deep into my disease, 
the only way I can stop is if I get locked up. And so this time I just built the cell myself. So that's, yeah. But, you know, I love Mickey, you know, he definitely, you know, him and Janine, she, she passed away from breast cancer, but they oh. fucking, they, you know, saved my life. You know, oh, that's amazing. Is he in, is he around or he's in Texas? Where's Nicky Mickey's at? around. No, he, okay. he lives, he, you know, verbal abuse still plays. Yeah. Uh, we, it's funny. Cause you know, I got to interview the Chavez brothers for sure. <laughs> I, I, I think that, uh, they just did a documentary about the Chavez brothers. I, oh, I, really? Yeah. With I the ramp and everything. Yeah. You know, it was like so awesome. Yeah. I, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I heard that they, that there, and there should be, I mean, right. you know, that whole yeah, family yeah. was so, so influential in the skate scene and in the music scene in the Bay area, you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously I, Bay Area is just for me. It's cold. Like anything that comes out of the Bay Area is just like this has always been home for me. So I remember growing up seeing the guy drop out of his window into the ramp. I'm like, that's the guy. That's the guy. <laughs> you know, it's so sick. What's stoking you out today? How many albums? How you guys recorded an album or a, a couple? Out Rise Up. Vinyl came out in 2019. 2019. Uh, the CD, yeah, the CD came out a little before that. We just recorded a couple songs that are going to be on a split seven inch. Uh, Fang uh, and uh, a band called Let It Bleed uh, on Die Laughing Records. That seven inch, at least for us, is a precursor to a new album that will hopefully come out in 2021. We're we're in the process of writing it now. Okay, and so. If somebody wanted to get into New Fang, what's the song that you want to want them to play first? Like, check this out. Well, we just uh, we just recorded a song called Minneapolis, and it's about uh, you know oh. the police station being burned. modern it's you know very much about trying to to add our voice to you know uh, many other voices in just how pissed off we are about george floyd you know and yeah. and you know the uh the systemic racism that goes on in the country so uh that song we did a music video of it it's up it's called minneapolis it's uh it's on youtube fang back in the early 80s was very much not a political band but right. uh 
but our last album rise up and then the direction we're going uh i'm more pissed off now <laughs> than i was 40 years ago uh as far as the hypocrisy and uh just how how fucked up uh this country still is yeah so you can't even write these aren't even movies like you can't like it's like it's in- no you can't even write that shit yeah. it's like the most ridiculous thing ever i it's, yeah. it's mind-blowing uh, fucking mind-blowing you, you know? would you would you ever have like some guests on would you do you ever think about on my next album i'd like to have nikki do a song with me or like i don't know jello be or somebody like from the olden days like or is it like no that's not our thing we're just fang and we're sticking to our thing i you know i i do i ever want to have i mean i would definitely bring uh guys in you know doing backup vocals shit like that uh have we, i i've never really thought about doing like a a you know bringing in other people it's yeah it's so hard as it is like uh, yeah it took us imagine. a long time to write our last record and uh um you know what's but, your process are you guys sending like is the guitarist sending digital files to people like how's that we do some of that together? and then i come back to oakland uh, i didn't go back last month because it, covid was so bad uh-huh. you know uh right around but i've been trying to come out uh once a month oh you know and then we spend like two or three days in the studio writing. Um, and then, and then we'll work on stuff, uh, you know, by ourselves, you know, uh, and then come together and try and write. But uh, we have about five new songs, you know, and I'd like to get at least 12 or 14, you know, together before we go into studio and, and make a new record. And it'll be on Die Laughing Records too. They've been a great label for us. It's a lot harder now. I live in Tucson and one of our guitar players lives in Monterey, Mexico. Oh, you know? shit. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's, uh, that makes it definitely more challenging. You right. Know? I mean, getting the chemistry would be hard, but at least you can still email each other to get riffs and figure out like, oh, I like that. What about this? And, right. and play off that stuff. I mean, those are some of the advantages of modern technology that sometimes we despise <laughs> you know um, right no it's it is it's kind of and we we probably don't take advantage of it as much as we could you know i know okay. people have written whole records and never sat in the same room with each other you know you know like they'll have they'll be all it's it's that's mind blowing and we're not we're not that technologically advanced but we do definitely like you said you know like a guitar player will write a bunch of riffs send them to all of us. What do you think about this? You know, and uh, we'll go back and forth. And then when we, when we do all come together, we spend a lot of time and, and all we're doing right now is working on writing new material. We don't practice, you know, like our set or anything. We're just really trying to focus on, on getting new, new songs together, you know? Okay. Um, out of all the songs in the whole world, y- yours, other bands anything you could just put one on to send us off into the sunset you want to just drop the needle and we'll play that song and 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 get out of here what would it be wow boy talk about being put on the spot that is so (laughs) so hard 
the first song that popped into my head was Mary Jane by Rick James. So I I, I'm a huge, huge Rick James fan, you know, which is probably maybe bizarre, but that's the first song that popped into my head. The last question I wanted to ask you is 2021. Thrasher has this thing called Mephisto predicts. If you're Mephisto, what are you predicting? Like what, what is going to happen this year? Are we going to get better? Are we going to stay the same? Are we going to get worse? Like, what are you thinking? I'm still an optimist. So I actually uh, predict that by the fall, uh, definitely by the winter, things are going to be, you know, back close to normal, you know, uh, as far as, you know, for me, live music obviously is very important. We haven't played a show in a long time, but I'm assuming that, you know, by, by the summer, uh, I think that the vaccine, you know, enough people start getting vaccinated where it will be start to be safe to have, you know, people go out to clubs again. But, you know, uh, I really, if I really want to be optimistic, we'll be on tour somewhere, you know, by the late fall of 2021, you know. So I like the way that sounds. Well, hopefully yeah. you, you guys will come through the Bay Area and play a couple of shows, either East Bay, West Bay, or both. I'm sure that well, that'll probably be the first place we play. You know, once it's uh, once we're not putting every you know bunch of people at risk. You know, I, I mean, it's right. gonna. No, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's that's. I think the uh, everybody just needs to hunker down and kind of wait it out. Um, any shout outs you want to, you want to plug anything that, that you're doing or people that have helped you along the way or any of that stuff? Oh, uh, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of people that helped me along the way. And yeah, I, 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 you know, <laughs> yeah. So, but they, they, for the most part, know who they are. Uh, you know, as far as plugs, you know, we have a seven inch coming out. Uh, go check out the new video of Minneapolis that just popped. Uh, we just dropped that. I'll uh, embed it in, in, on the page with the interview. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, it was edited. The video was edited uh, by my girlfriend, Annalisa Cheshire. She oh, did yeah. an amazing job at, uh, at her videography. So I'll give a shout out to her. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah. And look for uh, a record next year. Uh, and, uh, and keep, keep playing punk rock, keep skating. All right. And I want to give a shout out to Evan Sterling, who kind of connected the dots and put you in touch with me or me in touch with you. And I'm stoked to have got this. Uh, Also, I do have to mention for the hundredth time, thank you so much. Fucking you probably no doubt have the most time being interviewed by me because we had to do it twice so i really appreciate you taking the time i really do no it's it's actually been it's been it's been good and i love evan that dude's the fucking he's super awesome i haven't seen him since march 14th i've seen him i think since march 14th maybe yeah yeah been working from home since then it's crazy wow it's almost a year I'm, i'm like this is nuts that's like, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I love that guy. Evans Evans is shit. Thanks for having me on again. <laughs> yeah, thank you, man. Take care. Be safe. All right, bro. Take care.
Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Schmidt. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. When you subscribe, you'll get notifications every Tuesday of new episodes the minute they become available. Also, please leave reviews and a five-star rating. It's the best way to help the show grow. All of the episodes will always remain free, but if you would like to help support the show, you can do so at TalkingSchmidt.com, where you can pick up some merchandise like t-shirts, beanies, hats, and stickers. The website has an entire archive of all of the episodes, with extra photos and videos. Email us with any suggestions, comments, or ways that the show may have improved your life at TalkingSchmidt at gmail.com. All interviews are conducted, edited, and produced by Schmitty. The intro music is Mary's Cross by the band Nature. A very special shout-out goes to the executive director, Cheryl Camisa. This is Talking Schmidt, where the Rolodex is deep, but the conversation is deeper.